today on EdgeFX. Rather than paralyzing our readers with fear, we're hoping that through the wonder of all of these arrangements in the world to mobilize a sense of activity and possibility within this very terrible time that we have created. Geographer Charlie Carlin speaks with Dr. Anna Singh, co-editor of the new collection, Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, Ghosts and Monsters of the Anthropocene. They explore the ways we write about the present and the figures we use, like ghosts and monsters, to make sense of the new possibilities for human and non-human relations in our uncertain future in the Anthropocene. So today on the EdgeFX podcast, we are honored to have Dr. Anna Singh as our guest. Dr. Singh is Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a Niels Bohr Professor at Aarhus University in Denmark, where she co-directs the Aarhus University Research on the Anthropocene. Anna's books include the 1993 work, In the Realm of the Diamond Queen, Marginality in an Out-of-the-Way Place, Friction, an Ethnography of Global Connection, published in 2004, and both of those works are focused on fieldwork in Indonesia. The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins came out in 2015, and it follows the international commodity train of Matsutake mushrooms, often focusing on Southeast Asian pickers who are now living and working in Oregon's Cascade Mountains. She won both the Gregory Bateson Prize and the Victor Turner Prize for that work. Her latest project is the edited volume, Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, which Anna co-edited with Heather Swanson, Elaine Gann, and Nils Bubant. Anna, thanks for joining us and welcome to EdgeFX. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you here this morning. So there is so much to talk about with this book. It's an interesting physical layout. It brings people together from so many different disciplines. There's some questions of vocabulary, and it really just brings together pretty fascinating and creative contribution to how we think about the Anthropocene. And before we dive into sort of the nuts and bolts and the details of this book, Anna, I was hoping for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, if you could just tell us a little bit about your scholarship and what's led you to your interest in the Anthropocene and pretty ambitious transdisciplinary projects like this book, Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet. Well, let me tell you about two things. The first is for a number of years, I was doing research, as you mentioned in your introduction, on Matsutake mushrooms that resulted in that book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. And one of the most exciting things about that research was the real joy that I saw not only with pickers, but with uh, scientists working on fungi with kinds of social managers of the forest and all kinds of people who were involved in mushrooms. And it gave me a sense that when you have an object of such charisma and pleasure, at least as fungi, that the disciplinary divides stop being quite as important as they are perhaps in the classroom. And that perhaps is what made it possible. The other project to tell your listeners about is the Aarhus University Research on the Anthropocene group that I've had the pleasure to co-direct with Nils Bubant. And we're in our fourth year of a project that's funded by the 
Danish National Research Foundation. And it allows us to experiment, as it would, with collaborations across disciplines, that we have ecologists and biologists in our team, as well as anthropologists, art historians, artists, philosopher, various folks from the humanities and the arts. And so we try and work together across this. And Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet was our first big effort to see if we could conjure up together some of the kinds of pleasures and common commonalities that I had also seen in my mushroom research. And I'm curious, did did you feel successful? You know, did the book conjure up those pleasures? I can imagine all the challenges of working across so many <laughs> ways of thinking um, and just ways of producing knowledge as well. I think the book is a wonderful realization of what's possible. I mean, it's just the beginning of the road rather than the end, that in Aura, which is the acronym for the Aura's University Research on the Anthropocene, we're trying to continue down that road to come up with some kinds of projects where we see how we're substantively contributing to knowing something that all sides want to know about the world. Uh, so that's still there, but I think the energy and enthusiasm that you see in that set of essays really gets us started down that path. And our commitment to making the book beautiful and interesting and full of delights all the way through is in part because we see it as a door that opens towards some other projects that we hope to see in the future. So this book is organized around two central figures. You have monsters and ghosts. And they're defined and described in many ways throughout the book. But in one instance, you all as the editors write, monsters ask us to consider the wonders and terrors of symbiotic entanglement in the Anthropocene, while ghosts remind us that we live in an impossible present, a time of rupture, a world haunted with the threat of extinction. So can you tell us a little bit about how you all arrived at these figures, the work they do in the volume. And do you imagine ghosts and monsters continuing to live as enlivening or organizing figures in your know, work that Aura does or in your own scholarship? One way of seeing it is that ghosts and monsters each show us potentials for transdisciplinary collaboration, that monsters takes us into all the new work that biologists are doing on symbioses and the ways that organisms, it turns out, are not that modernist figure of an individual that has to survive by itself, but instead are involved in all kinds of entanglements with other species and other individuals. And that seems monstrous to us because we're used to an idea of individual organisms, not just humans, but non-humans that maybe interact with others because they eat them or they're eaten, but not because they can't develop, they can't become who they are without these other organisms. These are our monsters. It's also a way of understanding a path that's beginning to open in collaborations between biologists and folks working in the humanities and social sciences who've also 
people been interested in dismantling this figure of the modern individual and arguing, for example, in anthropology, that all over the world, people don't see themselves as individuals, but as entangled in complicated ways so that they just have parts of themselves that are related to their kinship networks, for example, or otherwise completely mixed up with others. So there's a sense in which the common monstrosity, the common refusal of this modernist individual takes us in to both a path for collaboration and some really exciting new scholarship in both the humanities and the natural sciences. Similarly, the ghosts figure, it seems to me, takes on ecologies of damage in which pasts are always there haunting presence. That's our figure of the ghost. Is It's a haunting with all of the things that you can't leave behind in contrast to that kind of modernist dream that you can just break with the past and everything will be new and shiny. These ghosts continue to remind us that pasts matter and that this kind of work that's coming out of a kind of radical ecologists who are very unhappy with the kind of business as usual of the present. There's a sense where there's a wonderful intersection with social environmental historians who are also worrying about the many legacies of the past, whether they're colonial conquest, the kind of violences that have marked the landscape, or the relations between humans and non-humans that have changed. Uh, as a result. So these ghosts, too, they open a door towards both a potential for transdisciplinary work and a set of some of the most exciting stories that need to be told in our times on both sides of the line between humanities and natural sciences. So, yes, I think those figures really help us. On the other hand, I don't think we need to have them as boxes where, you know, I don't can't imagine future scholars kind of arguing, well, is this a monster? Is this a ghost? Um, so I think the other thing to say about them is that they're an attempt to break down the lines between uh, kinds of figurations that are seen as kind of serious and scholarly and those that come out of vernacular traditions of understanding the world. So we're trying to keep a playful spirit alive rather than creating a formal classification system. Nils Heather and I wrote a little article about the Anthropocene as science fiction, where so you can kind of see some of the same attempts to create some new tropes for how we're thinking about both humans and non-humans. Well, and as I listen to you talk about monsters and ghosts, one of the other things I, I think that those two figures do is capture some of the emotional tone that mm. it sounds like you're getting at in this collection of essays and in your work on mushrooms. You, know, you described fungi as this object of charisma, and you talked about wanting to make the book beautiful and to have delight throughout it. And so as monsters really work a couple of different ways, that there's this idea of things being monstrous in terms of not what we expected, not what we want, that they really challenge these ideas of the, the pure individual. But then as you described monsters, there's the excitement of thinking about life as symbiotic. And it's a, a challenging 
emotional tone that the book is holding in really detailing the very real actual ongoing extinctions, the threat of more extinctions of this mass extinction that we're living in, but also the creative challenge and delight in just getting to know and describe and move forward in our world in a, in a different way. Yes, you've touched a really important point that we're trying on the one hand to take the danger of the Anthropocene really seriously. The idea that uh, livability in its broadest sense, not just for humans, but for all of life on Earth is, is being challenged by the kind of industrial ecologies that we brought into being. On the other hand, rather than paralyzing our readers with fear, we're hoping that through the wonder of all of these arrangements in the world to mobilize a sense of activity and possibility within this very terrible time that we've created. I think one of the essays that tries the most directly to address that is Deborah Bird Rose's essay on the shimmering, where she's, on the one hand, she talks about the possibility for the disintegration of one of the most important coordinations in Australian nature between the flying foxes and the eucalyptus trees that are pollinated by them all across the country, and the possibility that this could break down merely because humans think flying foxes are pests and feel fine killing them. And at the same time, she wants to capture uh, from what she got from the Aboriginal teachers that she had of the beauty and wonder of the shimmer of flowers and to remind us, like, why are there flowers in the first place? That they are so bright and beautiful precisely because they want to coordinate with pollinators. They want to draw pollinators to them and we get the benefits of this world created of shimmer. So let's talk a little bit about the physical layout of this book, which is striking. So as you open the book, you'll open either to ghosts or monsters. Each section has its introduction, and then you make your way to the end of that section and suddenly find that you're holding the book upside down and to flip it around to find the other half of the book. And so I'm curious about how the book came to, to look like this, how it came to be constructed like it. Well, I want to give special credit to Elaine Gann, who is an artist who's on our editorial team and whose idea of this upside down book came from her. And I think it's a wonderful way of showing how things might fit together entangled without a hierarchical ordering. That rather than having the first part of the book and the second with all its implications that one is more important than the other, to join them back to back upside down was our way of showing entanglement. I mean, just to mention another article in the book, Donna Haraway's work on what she calls the school scene, that time of entanglement among different kinds of organisms, and particularly what she calls the tentacular. So we built tentacles into the book through the art of Jesse Lopez. He drew us some tentacles and some vines, and half of the book uh, has the motif of vines and the other half has tentacles. And on the center page, they join each other and curl around each other and become indistinguishable. So our goal was to show 
these kinds of entanglements, which are also the theme of the book in the format itself. Well, and as a reader, one of the things that I I really came to enjoy in the book was just that sense of one doesn't necessarily follow from the other. I, I found myself reading and rereading parts of the book a, a few times and flipping it back and forth as I really as I learned to find my way through the book. And there was a part of that that was disorienting at first, that there wasn't a clear map or this is what I'm supposed to take or think from the book. And then reading the introductions a second time, going back through some of the essays, uh, I was really able to get a sense of some of those entanglements and the way that ghosts gesture to monsters and vice versa, that winds up, you wind up having your reader flipping that book back and forth and, and moving between the two uh, a little bit like a choose-your-own-adventure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I, I'm a fan of formal experimentation, and sometimes I think it can help bring themes to life. And so we certainly tried in this to show different voices, different pieces of the story, and of course, different disciplines and different different kinds of organisms, and how all of these were tied into each other, but without it being a neat system in which one would organize the other in some simple way. Anna, you mentioned a, a minute ago Donna Haraway's Cthulhuine. She and others have also at times suggested that instead of labeling this epic the Anthropocene, we should call it the Capitalocene. One of the things that this book doesn't do is spend a lot of time on just the level of concept. Uh, so there isn't an essay specifically arguing about what should we call our era. While mm-hmm. I think many of the commitments of the book are there and are clear, there aren't statements about whether we should think about this as the great Anthropocene, as you know, folks who write and say the eco-modern tradition would mm-hmm. argue. And so, and you have made an effort to make you know, each one of these essays is somehow grounded in experience of the world. And I wonder if you could just talk about that that choice of keeping the the writing and the essays down to earth, so to speak. Well, it's actually an extremely important part of our conception and that we hope that readers outside of the academy might not have trouble with this, but the readers in the academy sometimes have trouble without it being spelled out that this is meant as a kind of theoretical and conceptual intervention. But our goal is to argue that the place to begin with these necessary transdisciplinary kinds of collaborations is in engagement with the details of the world rather than in working out philosophy first and then trying to hammer it down into the world. That we need to begin instead with ants or with lichens or with other kinds of ways of knowing the world, you know, snake spirits in volcanoes, and to build out from them a sense of what's possible in terms of bringing scientists and humanists together and in making an intervention into the terrible hegemony of business as usual in our time. So it's not intended as a way of walking away from those dangers, but indeed 
as engaging in the center of them, that we do not include eco-modernist perspectives in this book because we are arguing that we our use of the term Anthropocene is to describe a time in which business as usual is likely to kill us. But our way of engaging that then is to begin with the concrete materiality of the world around us and to argue that we need to start noticing it more. So we try and uh, put that into practice in the essays by showing how these concrete engagements and particular stories can tell us more than a generalized statement that if we want to think about you know, say extinction, that the story of how the red knot birds fly 5,000 miles so that they can feast on the eggs of horseshoe crabs. And then the, you know, industry for medical testing has taken away all the horseshoe crabs. Suddenly the birds are going to starve. That that kind of a figure for understanding extinction might be better in a way than just an argument about whether the Anthropocene is good or bad. That's a terrific way of explaining that. Thank you. So on this this challenge and the excitement of of working across disciplines, one of the things that I'm curious and I want to talk a little bit about from the book is is the vocabulary that there is a sense that there's so much that's exhilarating and exciting about the book and some of that is communicated through new new to, to many of us language to to wrestle with. So earlier when you were talking about the postmodern synthesis in biology that several of your contributors talk about and this idea of not thinking of ourselves as individuals, but as symbionts or holobionts. There is a challenge of language there. And I know that all academic communities, we, we each have our own dialect, our ways of speaking to each other, ways that we make our arguments legible. And I wonder if there were challenges of vocabulary or translation that came up in putting this together, or or perhaps even if you just speak about how you manage some of that in your own work, perhaps in the mushroom at the end of the world, as you're going working through so many different ways of knowing that mushroom. Well, I think all of us who write are always trying to build an audience and maybe open that audience to people who might not have thought that they were inside it. And that's a matter of trying to use words as well as we know how. For me, I think it's a matter of creating vivid images and tropes that work to pull us forward into paths that we might not have seen, that I don't like kinds of scholarly work that try to ban words, to try to say, well, my words are really good and all the words that have ever been used before should be thrown in the garbage. That if anything... I'm interested in drawing in the people who use those words, even if those words are contaminated. There's not a single word in any language that isn't contaminated with all those ghosts, all those ways that's been used in the past. So for me, I want to add more rather than subtract uh, words and images. I think the ones that we picked in this book do have to do with our ghosts and monsters, that is, with the ways that the kinds of uh, new biologies that Margaret Mafal Nye so beautifully describes that just transform everything that you could think about biology with this new vocabulary of, you know, holobionts and, and 
a new understanding of what it means to be an organism. So we need to bring that uh, to make it possible for humanists who've also been thinking, as I was saying, about the ways that modernist individuals are in a kind of straitjacket for humans, that bringing these new vocabularies into a humanist context has been very exciting. And that similarly, the kind of ecologies of extinction, of the problematic kinds of disturbances that industrial society has brought us into, that these are things that humanists who think so much about words might be able to pull into to add to the kinds of words that we've been using before. So my my sense is to try and add ghost words and monster words, let's say, to the vocabulary that we have for thinking about uh, the environment and relations between humans and non-humans. And in that vein of of writing to try and open up an audience you know, and to speak mm-hmm. to people who may not have realized they were part of the, the audience before, who do you imagine to be the audience for this book? And, and do you have a sense of either this book, Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, or the Anthropocene Project at Aarhus really reaching beyond academics and, and scholarly communities? Well, I'm kind of hoping, yes. That, I mean, that part of the reason we wanted the book to be beautiful and accessible is in the hope that some people pick it up who aren't the kind of people who would have thought it was for them. And, and I felt great that at least some people have picked up The Mushroom at the End of the World who wouldn't be expected to have read it. So I'm trying to create that possibility. We're also trying to influence a range of scholars in the academy and scientists. And that's got its own challenges, I think, precisely because when you don't give people a kind of straightforward disciplinary review of here's the kinds of literatures that we are using and how we're changing them, then scholars don't know how to read it. They get confused. So I don't think we can take our scholars for granted, and we hope that they'll be feeling open-minded enough to catch on to, yes, the kind of kind of excitement of the book to get interested in it. So we're trying to advocate for a kind of curiosity about the world rather than just about competing theories. And, you know, as, as so often happens in the humanities, and it's also not data for data's sake, as sometimes happens in the natural sciences. So in our dream world, people will use this to realign what they think is important, a kind of why bother learning about the world. I would love it if some young people who are still developing their ways of understanding the world would read this and think, ah, there's a set of interesting questions that I might not have thought of before. Older people too. (laughs) So as we talk about while there is this this new vocabulary of symbiosis, that an entanglement that moves through the book, there aren't a lot of mentions of words like nature or wilderness mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. wildness, conservation and preservation. And of all the genres that are in the book, one genre that isn't readily apparent, at least, is nature writing. 
one that has traditionally crossed those boundaries between natural history, science writing, philosophy, perhaps ethics. And so there's a sense that the language might not be immediately legible to what we would think of as more traditional environmentalist or conservation communities. And I wonder you know, what, what kind of a message or challenge or intervention this book has for those communities. I, I, that's a great question worth thinking through. And it, in a really broad sense, nature writing could be considered a style that makes experiences of environments and non-humans accessible to people who haven't been explicitly trained in some kind of scientific or scholarly knowledge base. And in that broad sense, what we're doing is nature writing. I think there is an interesting difference that the most classical examples of nature writing give us a praise of the human experience within the magnificence of nature. And this book asks how we experience the damage wrought by industrial civilization of our times. So we're offering a kind of nature writing about damage rather than an imagination of untouched plenty. So this is a kind of nature writing about exploring radioactive chambers where you can see the radioactivity or noticing sewage-filled canyons where tomatoes are growing up in the midst of, you know, old tires. So this is a kind of nature writing in which observers feel the pressures of extinction as well as the wonders of biodiversity. It's a different kind of nature writing, and I think we really need it. Wow, that's really well said. Well, I can certainly perhaps think of some examples of that in the canon. You're absolutely right that, you know, some of what this book offers is, you know, beautiful prose, you mentioned being able to see radioactivity. And so Kate Brown writes this essay about a, a man at Chernobyl who has spent his career exploring the ruins there and photographing the, the traces of radioactivity that remain there. And there's something that lives in that essay that is this prose that is about sort of the wonder of that experience, but also the monstrosity of it and the oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I, I feel exactly that combination of wonder and complete horror reading that essay. So it's a good example of the affective engagements that we are also trying to mobilize through the book. So one other question about these efforts to put together these big transdisciplinary scholarly projects is how this might speak back to the training given to, to graduate students, even how undergraduate programs are crafted. The introduction to the monsters section in the book criticizes the division of the natural sciences and humanities as part of the ideology of modernity. Um, and yet, many of us who live and work in academic communities still live within the reality that doctoral training, job placement, um, even the achievement of tenure are all structures that, for the most part, remain deeply committed to these disciplinary bordering practices. And so, in the book, you talk about how some of the most successful transdisciplinary projects are the result of people working for 
decades to work across their own disciplines to reach out to others who share a similar fascination with their objects of concern. But I wonder if you have thoughts about how the way that the Anthropocene Project is challenging our division of concepts and our division of labor, how we might think about training students differently as well. It's a really good question because it's not at all simple that even among established scholars, just how to do these collaborations is not a simple thing because of the kinds of questions one asks, the level of detail that one's responsible for, the kinds of findings that count as findings are so different across disciplines. We're trying very hard to think about these questions uh, and particularly to come up with kinds of collaboration in which curiosity and what Isabel Stengers has called slow science is at the center so that rather than the kind of big science where everyone just has a compartment and checks off particular contribution, that we want to come up with kinds of fieldwork in which scientists and humanists work together to figure out what's worth studying. We have our own little project in Central Jutland. It's a former brown coal mine that's sort of growing back into a weedy landscape. And we've tried to bring teams out there, both students and established scholars, to work together to figure out, okay, what would you consider an interesting question here? And I can't say that we've figured it out, but what's nice is that we're coming up with kinds of methods that might allow people to take the kind of disciplinary training they have and stretch it. So I don't think we're advocating the abolition of disciplinary training, which sometimes can leave people with just a sort of a superficial understanding of a lot of things that don't fit together. But but we're stretching what might count in particular disciplines by opening up questions that might not have mattered, just in the same way, for example, that anthropologists have taken on the social relations of non-humans as part of our discipline, that that's still based in anthropology in some ways, but it challenges what anthropology used to be. In the same way, when ecologists take on historical frameworks as part of what they are doing, it stretches the kinds of ecology that are possible. We've got another little idea that's still very much in motion. We're putting together an interactive digital project called Feral Atlas. We're going to solicit a bunch of short essays that show when you put industrial infrastructures out there in the world, all kinds of organisms and even non-living things go crazy in the way of like overgrowing, becoming some other kind of thing. Uh, one of our examples is Elaine Gantz working on that project too and has studied how the pest brown plant hoppers in the Philippines has become something completely different because of synthetic fertilizers have made it go from a very unimportant pest to a really important pest. So that's an example of the kind of, of feral biologies that we're talking about there. And we're going to solicit from all kinds of people across disciplinary things, these short essays. The idea behind this is that users might think about potential research projects for the future differently, that this almost game-like digital kind of interface will allow 
students and scholars to say, oh, there's a set of questions there at the heart of this problem of arts of living on a damaged planet that might change how one could ask a question, say, about what kinds of organisms under what conditions start to be aggressive and stop playing well with others. That project is meant to inspire a set of research projects that don't even exist yet. So there's another way that we're trying to draw people into a conceptualization of what's possible. And as I hear you talk about that, and I hear you talk about what thick description and the tools of anthropology can offer to thinking ecology different and what biology and challenging the idea of an individual versus thinking of ourselves as symbionts can do for how those of us in the social sciences and the humanities think about the individual, that there's an offering here that isn't just the challenge to put together transdisciplinary projects, but to think about what are the possibilities within our own disciplines differently, Mm -hmm. Uh, as you just Mm -hmm. mentioned, bringing in a more than human focus to anthropology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, I think opening up of disciplines as well as working across disciplines is, is, is necessary that the challenge of that warning that we call Anthropocene is to try and come up with forms of scholarship that don't assume that the ways that you work with humans and non-humans is so completely different. Well, one last theme I'd like to touch on from the book that uh, we haven't talked about as much is this idea of different times and how we think about time. So one of the arguments uh, that you mentioned as you brought up the, the figure of ghosts is that the Anthropocene challenges the sort of single time and space configurations of modernity, a universal march towards some kind of progressive figure. And Nils Boubant, one of your co-editors, writes in his essay that if modernity dreamed of the future, the Anthropocene dreams of the present as seen from the future, a perspectival shift that makes our necropolitics apparent to ourselves in the starkest of lights. And so there's a challenge in this book to think about how history and future and the present sort of commingle at the sites of research of each of these different essays. And and I wonder just how that challenge to a single conception of time has influenced your own thinking or your work and and even just how how you present the objects that you write about. Well, Nelson and I... We just got back from some fieldwork in Indonesia where we were going to a particular place in eastern Indonesia and saltwater crocodiles only in the last few years started eating people. So we decided to do a little project on what was going on with the crocodiles. But the thing that was interesting is where perhaps I would have liked it, of course, if they had presented me with indigenous natural histories that explain the behavior of crocodiles. But the kinds of histories that we got were often about the original occupants of the land, the spirit owners of the land, who were angry because of uh, logging and mining without their permission, and who were attacking people in the form of crocodiles. And it brought us in to a space 
as you can imagine, where many kinds of histories had to be considered at the same time. The history, both secular and non-secular histories of crocodiles, and both ways that we imagined crocodiles and these other crocodiles who could be spirit beings and ancestors of a certain kind. I don't know if this is answering your question at all, but it suggests Mm -hmm. the very progress orientation that brought us into the Anthropocene had the conceit that there was going to be one kind of time, and it was a facing forward. And the taking the terror of the Anthropocene seriously suggests that we can't just have that one kind of time and that all these other kinds of times actually are extremely important in shaping the kinds of configurations that we're in. And indeed, the sense of interspecies coordinations and antagonisms, as in the case of the crocodiles. I'm not sure I'm addressing your question quite the way that it deserves. No, I think I think you are. And some of what you're evoking there are the different figures that occupy those different times as well. And so to get at that, one of the other things that Nils mentions in in his essay, which is about mud volcano um, that exploded in, in Southeast Asia and the differing explanations for why that volcano exploded, and that there are explanations that follow geology, and there there are political economic explanations that an oil company and their drilling mm-hmm. caused the eruption of this volcano. And then there are also spiritual explanations that that spirits were involved in why this volcano exploded. And he makes the point uh, that I think you're bringing up here with the crocodiles as well, that the Anthropocene reintroduces figures that were once thought to be sidelined by the secularization of modernity. So he brings up the example of Gaia. Uh, And of course, Lynn Margulis, who figures largely in this book, along with James Lovelock, introduced a a, a book, The the Gaia Hypothesis, which when it came out in the 1990s was criticized as being romantic uh, or introducing a spiritualism to the study of biology and global geochemistry. And so through those figures, or you mentioned Deborah Birdrose and this idea of shimmer as a way to see the force of life, that by thinking about time differently, we're also thinking about figures that were once sort of sidelined or devalued as spiritual, having a really important place in conversations about how we move through the Anthropocene. I think that's quite right, and that uh, the kinds of hierarchies of knowledge that got us here are going to have to be opened up if we want to stop ignoring all of the effects that that ignoring itself helped to create. Well, I know we're coming up on our hour here, and I want to be respectful of your time, but let me just close by saying, what haven't I asked you about this book? What do you think is really cool about this project that we should know about? Well, I'm hoping that your listeners uh, take a look at some of the weird and wonderful essays in it. I think it's got a whole variety of amazing kinds of ranging from just things that you might be curious about, like why 
Are lichens considered immortal to things that are important to surviving our times? And so I, I guess the most important thing is I hope people will dip into the book and find something for themselves in all of the different essays. Great. Well, Anna, thank you so much for your time and your generosity and all of these fascinating and insightful comments, both into this book project and into your work on the Anthropocene Project at Aarhus University and your own thinking as well. We really appreciate it. This is a wonderful and fascinating book that has certainly pushed my own thinking. And we really appreciate both your work on the book and your time with us today on Edge Effects. Hey, why don't before we stop, why don't you describe yeah. one more essay that you liked? Because I, I love the way that you've been doing it. So just before we stop, just pick one, anyone, and say what you liked about it. Yeah. So I think that I, I get I get two answers. Um, <laughs> I think to answer your question directly, I really enjoyed the series of essays on the postmodern synthesis in biology. Yes. So this is Donna Haraway writing about staying with the trouble, Margaret McFall and the guy writing about noticing microbial worlds, and Scott Gilbert on Holobiont by birth. You know, and especially within that Margaret McFall Nagai's essay on noticing microbial worlds that just blew my mind in terms of really thinking about you know myself as a person, not actually as mostly a person, but as made up of mostly bacteria. And so knowing that any individual, any individual organism is actually made up mostly of cells that aren't what we would traditionally call that organism. And it opens up such a fascinating dialogue between those deconstructions of individuality, of the sort of that figure of what the human does in philosophy and in our humanist traditions. Uh, it creates such a neat dialogue back with the, the natural sciences. Um, and each of those three essays, I think, is such a, a wonderful example of science writing that crosses over into detailed description, into beautiful narrative, and that really arrests the reader's attention by telling a, a beautiful story through this data that's um, really just kind of blew up my mind. Thank you. That was great and better than I could do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you know, reading the Gaia hypothesis as a as an undergrad. So I graduated from undergrad in the the early two thousands, and my both my biology professors and my history professors being suspicious of the book and and of my interest in it. And so it was to sit down and to open up this book and to see Lynn Margulis's yes. work yes. featured mm -hmm. so strongly. Really um, come of age in our yeah. uh, across disciplines. I think that's quite right. Yes. Uh, and I, I really appreciated, you know, the effort within the book and that series of essays to make to make the point of the importance of citation. You know that mm -mm. the the heritage of Lynn Margulis's work needs to be acknowledged and brought forward. Just as I think about in you know, some other similar projects to this, you know, the importance of acknowledging and telling the stories of so many of the indigenous traditions around the world that 
haven't really had to wrestle with this deconstruction of individuality because they never got caught in that trap in the first place. And so <laughs> the book does a really nice job of, of making that point of bringing forth the individuals and the knowledge traditions as a whole that you know make this kind of thinking possible. Thank you. Great. Well, Anna, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Welcome back to Denmark from your travels. Yes. Uh, and I really look forward to reading the next project that comes out of the research on the Anthropocene and your work as well. It's been really informative and influential for me and for many of us here at CHE. So thank you so much. Thank you. That was Charlie Carlin, PhD candidate in the Geography Department of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaking with Anna Singh, currently the Niels Bohr Professor at Aarhus University in Denmark and director of the Aura program at Aarhus University. They were discussing her new edited collection, Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, Ghosts and Monsters of the Anthropocene, available now from the University of Minnesota Press. You've been listening to EdgeFX, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Brian Hamilton and me, Sarah Thomas. The music you're listening to is by Julian Lynch. We're back with new episodes this fall. Upcoming guests include anthropologist Marisol de la Cadena, historians Greg Cushman, Bryant Simon, and Richard White, and sociologist Jason Moore. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review that helps us connect with new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at the hashtag EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net. <laughs>